You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gcceugene.org. If we haven't met, my name is Rick, and if you're willing to come up after service and introduce yourself, I would love to meet you. My role here at Gospel Community Church is one of the elders, and specifically my task, my job description is to oversee the preaching and teaching ministry. And so that's my primary job here, and it's a job that I love to do. It's my dream job. So I'm grateful for it. Grateful for you guys. Great to be uh, here this morning. I have a big announcement, so I need you guys to tune in for this big announcement, okay? And if you have awes or bum, whatever bummed out noises sound like, anything like that, please put them on pause for just a moment and let me get through this. So instead of us doing two services on Christmas Eve, we have discussed and decided to do one service on Sunday morning, okay? The reason why is a big reason is volunteer capacity for a church like us that is uh, remote that uh, has set up and tear down. And so that's one big reason there are some other reasons. If you have more questions, you're more than willing to come up and we can discuss that after service. But just so you guys know, we are still going to do a Christmas Eve service. It's going to be at our normal service time at 10 a.m. And so here's what I would ask. If you are a member of Gospel Community Church, please show up early that Sunday. Ladies and gentlemen, that's pretty much all of you. Please show up early that Sunday morning and move to the front because I would imagine if you guys are inviting family and friends, it's going to be a pretty full service and then it provides a space in the middle and the back for newcomers to come in and not feel like they have to ch- or j- just try and find a place to sit. It also makes things a little easier on our ushers. So that's what I would ask. We're going to do a Christmas Eve service at 10 a.m. and I would ask for you guys that are members to move forward on that morning, be here, uh, be here a little early, move forward to make it a little bit more available and accessible to the new people coming in that day. So that's it. That's the big announcement. And so uh, we will make sure that starting now we push that communication for those that aren't here, but you guys can also help us if you know people that aren't here today to reach out to them and just give them that announcement. That would be great. So this morning we are going to continue on in our series, looking at some of the titles of the promised Messiah to come. Last week we looked at that the promised Messiah was going to be the wonderful counselor. Today we are looking at this, that he is El Gabor, which means mighty God. And so we are going to look at these titles throughout the next few weeks to come as well. And here's the amazing things. The amazing thing is that Isaiah tells us what the Messiah is going to be like through these titles. And so if you're wondering how we see Christ and God as the same, we can even look at these titles that Isaiah gives and says, this this is the son, the child to be born. He's going to be the wonderful counselor. He is going to be the mighty God, a name only given to Yahweh, in our Old Testament. He, he is going to be the everlasting father, and he's going to be the prince of peace. Today, we're going to look at that he's going to be the mighty God, and we're going to look at this. There is peace in the power of our mighty God, which in a lot of ways, those two words don't go together, because when we think of power, we think not of the way scripture has shaped our understanding of power, but how the world has, and we bring that to scripture, instead of letting scripture and the definition of power shape our world. So we're going to look at that this morning, how there is peace in the power of our mighty God. So Let's pray, and I'll dive in. Father, thank you. I am grateful, Father, for your word. And it's clear for those who wrote the songs that we just sang that they meditated on your word. And I'm grateful for the rich lyrics that point us to your character, point us to your son, and point us to what your son has done. I am thankful for our worship team 
to proclaim those lyrics. And for us as a church family, you get to proclaim those lyrics that are true of you. Father, I thank you for our church family. I thank you that you've welcomed us into your family. And that welcoming only came by you ultimately giving us your son to come and live in a way that we have failed to, to come and die in the way that we deserve to, and to rise in a way that no one can, but you alone, Lord, have. Jesus, we thank you for your ascension, that you're seated at the right hand of God, that you intercede for us, that you pray for us, that you love your church infinitely. This morning, teach us of your power, the power to protect, the power of your provision, the power of your rescue. We love you, Lord, but know that we stand secure in your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. There is peace in the power of our mighty God. Let me read a true story from a mother. She says this, As a child, life came at my family pretty fast and heavy. I quickly learned to sift through it, manage it, and tuck it away. As I became an adult, being overwhelmed was a part of my every day. I had learned how to cope through the feeling. I knew what to do and became my own coach when needed. If my heart was overwhelmed, I suppressed the feeling. Because who has time to deal with a defeated heart? If my mind was overwhelmed, I made myself busy. If I could just forget why I was overwhelmed, ignore it somehow, it would be fine. I ended up adding onto my overwhelmed mind and heart with more doing. If I were physically overwhelmed with the doing, I would just tell myself it was part of a life to feel this way. I would excuse the feeling as part of my responsibility as someone who gets things done. All of this was a sign of an overwhelmed soul in deep need of a loving God. The weighted feeling of life, the persistent pressure, the inundation of it all, often pressing down so intensely it was difficult to breathe. Maybe you can relate. Not just as a mom, but maybe as a person in general, that we don't exactly live in the most peaceful times and the most peaceful culture. We live in a time of massive productivity and efficiency. And so maybe you are someone sitting here today that says, yes, my soul does not feel peace. And yes, my soul feels restless. And so how in the world does scripture speak to that? And how in the world does the power of a mighty God possibly give me peace? And oftentimes we can think of peace, even as Billy Ann was just saying, peace that we think is just the removal of something. God, if you would remove war from the world, God, if you would remove this. But what God offers isn't just the removal of something, it's the addition of his presence that ultimately gives us peace in the midst of storms. That's why I love Psalm 23. It's argued by most scholars that David wrote that Psalm toward the end of his life. It's the Psalm that goes like this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He goes on to explain what the shepherd does for him, but then he says, as he walks through the valley of the shadow of death, he will fear no evil. Though in the presence of his enemies, the Lord prepares a table before him. David started to understand that peace wasn't the absence of turmoil. Peace wasn't the absence of enemies. Peace wasn't the absence of those things in life. Peace came to the presence of Christ, his shepherd, with him. It's not just an absence. It's a power. What Israel needed, and we find in Isaiah 9, is Isaiah's prophesying, hey, there's this dark season coming. There's a really dark time ahead of you. The Assyrians are on the march. They're going to come. They're going to cut you down. And then they're going to carry you off into exile. It's going to be dark. And then he gives this future hope in Isaiah 9 of saying, but no, there's a bright light. There's a hope. There's a season that's coming. And that's where we pick up today. I'm going to ask you to do something that we don't have a tradition to do in a gospel community church. 
It's not that we're turning Catholic. We stand for uh, the judge when the judge walks in a room. So this morning we're going to stand for the reading of God's word and we're going to read Isaiah 9, 6 together. So stand with me. Plus, some of you have the habit of falling asleep. So use this as an opportunity to wake yourself up. You know who you are. Yeah, yeah. Yes, Steve. Isaiah 9, 6. We're going to read that together. So read it with me. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Maybe seated. Good job, GCC. Now, if I have you do it three or four more times, then you can question where we're going. There's peace in the power of our mighty God. Peace in the power of our mighty God. First, we, we need to understand this. When we look at these names, because it says, for to us, a child is born, to us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. We'll come back to that. And his name shall be called. And then we have these names. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when we read the Old Testament, we look and see, my goodness, God has a lot of names. He is called Yahweh, I am, which literally means he will be who he will be. He is called Adonai. He is called El Shaddai. He is called El Gabor. He has many names. Why? Because these are actually titles trying to encompass a God who's incomprehensible, meaning you can't give one single name to him to try and grasp all who God is. God is beyond our mind and beyond our grasping. And so he has these titles, and we can't confuse titles with names. For instance, Pharaoh wasn't Pharaoh's name. That was his title. Caesar is not Caesar's name. It's his title. Doctor is a title. Jake Clausen, who's in the room, he is Jake Clausen. That's his name. He's running slides back there. Jake has many titles. He's a husband. He is a father. He is an elder. Those are his titles, but his name is Jake Clausen. When we're looking at these names, they're specifically titles. When we get to the names of Jesus in the New Testament, we see the titles there too for his name. Jesus, Yeshua means savior. Messiah means appointed one. The appointed one saves. Emmanuel means that he is with us. The appointed one who saves dwells amongst us. These titles are beautiful and display and reveal to us who God is. Why? Because scripture is the revelation of who God is. When we open our Bibles, we want so bad to open it and flip to it and treat it like a yearbook and see where it signs specifically to us, but it's a book that is telling us all about who God is, and it's telling us all about the work that he has done and accomplished in his son. It's a beautiful thing. And what we're seeing today is that there is peace in the power of our God. Just as a side note, Names are a beautiful thing. Let's look at what Ecclesiastes 7.1 says about names. It says this, A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. That's an odd thing to say, right? Why would it say that? Because the day of death connected to someone's name gives us the history of someone's life. The day a baby's born, we don't go, look at all the accomplishments of baby John. Look at all. They're born, they're cute, they're adorable, but when we get to the end of life and we say, John... People know and understand who that person might be and, and, and what their name stood for. The incredible thing about names in the Bible is it's, it's a, one of the ways we can see we're created in the image of God. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, it's just one of the ways we can see we're created in the image of God. Let me explain this. God created everything. And then he named Adam. And then he gave Adam the authority to name the animals and to name Eve, which, whose name means mother of all the living and then what we do as humans is we name our kids. 
God set the example, Adam did it, and we continue to follow. Naming is a beautiful thing. If we didn't have names, we'd be really confused. Everyone would be, hey, you. Some of you guys who can't remember names to save your life, you might like that, but it would be really hard to know who is who. Names are a beautiful way, a very logical way from a logical God to explain and understand who someone is and our relationship to them. That was a side note, just a nugget. It's free, and we're going to keep cruising on. God as our mighty warrior. Look at this. To us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean, the government? It's also translated power or dominion. And so when we think about this, we need to understand that the power and authority is what he will possess, that, that the Messiah is going to have royal legal power authority. And then one of his names is going to be Mighty God. Why would that bring comfort to the nation of Israel? They, they need a strategic wise counselor, yes, but they need the power of a mighty God. Imagine this, if we put ourselves in Israel's shoes, someone comes in, an evil oppressor, overthrows them, takes them and carries them off into a foreign land. You're introduced to their language, their lifestyles, their way of eating, and their false gods. And you're there enduring all of this, hoping and praying that a mighty warrior would come, a rescuer, to deliver us from the position that we're in. You're not hoping at this point that the Messiah is just a philosopher. You are hoping this is a tail whooper, someone who is strong and powerful, someone who has the authority to come in and overthrow the enemy. You want someone who looks a bit like David, someone who can defeat a giant. You want someone who has the power to overthrow those who are causing you pain. That's the promise that Isaiah gives of the Messiah to come. There's going to be one who's coming. He's a wonderful counselor, but he's also a mighty God. Mighty means champion, and it means warrior. And just to be honest, I somewhat struggled when I came into Christianity because I, I didn't understand God as mighty God. And there was something in me that was like pulled toward it as I started to understand it. Because I assumed that to be a pastor or to be a Christian meant you wore a sweater vest and had a soft handshake. And then I started to read our Bible. And I'm like, whoa, there's this God. He's amazing. And he's loving and he's kind. And he has such protection over his people. Think about the mighty God we see in scripture. This is the God who created everything in existence who hung every planet. He has infinite power. That can be scary. We'll get to that in a minute, but his power doesn't have a limit. He's limitless in power. It's not like he got to Jupiter and then Saturn is like, I'm exhausted. It's time to throw up some smaller planets. He spoke it all into existence, everything, the entire universe. He wasn't exhausted. He wasn't sweating. He wasn't tired. He wasn't restless. He's God. He has that kind of power. And then we see his power in his creation. But then we see his power that, that, that goes hand in hand with his love for his people. This is the same God who, when he saw the, uh, the Egyptians oppressing his people, parted the Red Sea. This is the same God, as we continue to read on and we get to Joshua 5, there is a man standing there. Picture this. The Israelites come into the promised land. They get circumcised. All their men are in a very vulnerable spot. Joshua looks over and he sees someone standing there with a, with a, with a drawn sword. And he, and he talks to him. Finds out that it's Yahweh, that it's God. 
the commander of the Lord's army, giving watch over his people as a protector. If you read Joshua, it's incredible. I challenge you to read it. What, what you will notice is over and over again, there's this language that says the Lord gives the victory. The Lord gives the victory to his children. Look at what Exodus 14, 14 says. The Lord will fight for you, talking to the Israelites, and you have only to be silent. Deuteronomy 24 says this, for the Lord your God is the one who goes with you to fight for you against your enemy, to give you victory. Second Chronicles 20.15 says, Do not be afraid or discouraged because of the vast army, the vast army that's before you, for the battle is not yours, but God's. All of this would be really scary. If, if someone was all-powerful but not good, they would be a man, uh, malevolent person. In other words, they, they are all powerful, but not loving or good. And so they use their power for abuse in the world. But what we see with God is he doesn't have separate categories. God is all powerful, but he is also at the very same time, all kind and compassionate and merciful and loving. God holds those attributes all at the same time collectively in a way that no human can God does. He is all of those things at one time, which is why there's peace in the power of our mighty God, because God is not just all-powerful in a separate category. God is, at the same time, all-powerful and all-loving and all-kind and all-holy. He's all of those things. He's not one-sided. We must read God's power in light of also how God reveals himself in Exodus 34, which says this, the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. We must see that God is a warrior for his people, a champion for his people, a rescuer for his people, that God is all-powerful, infinite, but he's also kind and loving and slow to anger and patient. He possesses all of those things because he's good. So when we read this, and Isaiah is given this promise of this Messiah to come and says, for to us a child is born, a son is given, and the dominion and authority and power shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor and El Gabor, Mighty God. We go, that's a good thing, that a mighty God is coming to rescue. I love throughout Scripture, if you read Job, God is referred to there as El Shaddai, which means Almighty God, very similar. But Job has some questions, and then God shows up, and he, and he's, and he says, Job, gird your loins, because I have some questions. And he's not doing this to be cruel or unkind. He's reminding Job of who he is. Were you there at the creation? Were you there when I spoke everything to existence? Can you tame Leviathan? And he asks him these questions just to simply remind him, Job, I'm the all-powerful that's in control. Job, I put everything that there is into existence. Job, I am the great counselor, the wonderful counselor. I am El Shaddai. I am El Gabor. And you can take comfort in that. What amazes me is this. The power of God brings peace. How do we see the infinite God reveal himself to us in Christ? If we want to know what God is like, we look to Jesus, who is the perfect imprint of who God is. We see the power of God in this, in a baby born in a manger. Think about that. The, the infinite God who created everything, 
who holds all power and all authority that can't even be measured, comes in the form of a baby. A baby body, a human body containing the infinite God. That's amazing. I was just sitting last night thinking about that. I'm like, that is mind-blowing to me. I don't even know how the body doesn't explode. <laughs> Let me ask you this. Why do we have such an obsession with power as a culture? Why do we have such an obsession with power? Years ago, I dropped my 2001 purple Honda Civic off at the mechanic because it was making a sound that I can't even describe. It had a leak in the exhaust. A lot of people used to pay money to make the sound that my car did naturally. It was awful. I took it in. He said, you have this big massive hole in your exhaust or something like that. I don't speak mechanic. And then he said, I took care of it for you. I put a new set of headers on there or a header or something on there. And he goes, it's going to give you like 10 more horsepower. I'm like, sweet. I'm taking this baby to the drag strip right after this. I don't care. <laughs> this thing's going to step up from a go-kart. But he was really excited about telling me about the horsepower my car had gained. And if you look at it, it's like that's a sales pitch of, of almost every salesman is horsepower. We have things now and, and, and our understanding to tell us what the scale of an earthquake is. We have a Richter scale. We are constantly trying to assess power and understand power. You can listen to surfers talk about the power of the waves and the ocean and stuff like that. We're obsessed with power. Whether you're like the, the kind of hippie surfer type or you're the horsepower mechanic type, there seems to be an affection that we have with power. Why? We're created in the image of an all-powerful God. Though that image is scarred from our sin and marred, what we do is seek power to gain influence. We seek power to gain control. We seek power to control others. But the truth is, there's something in us pulled towards power. But the power that we're being pulled toward, and hear this, if you're not a Christian here this morning, I would challenge you. The reason why our culture loves power is because we know the power that we're actually being pulled toward. And it's not in the creation, it's in the creator. And then when we look at the baby in the manger, we see the power of God contained. It's mind-blowing to me because of this. Jesus comes takes on human flesh. God comes and lives among us. He, he is Emmanuel, and he's powerful. But the, but the creator needs to have his diaper changed. Whoa. The creator is then swaddled in cloths, resources that he created. <laughs> Does Jesus know what it is to feel vulnerable? Does Jesus know what it would be to insert yourself into a, uh, into a condition that would feel like it's out of control? Yeah. He willingly chose to take on human flesh. He didn't come as a seven-year-old, came as a baby and lived among us, lived am amongst us. How else does Jesus show his power? Well, look at the story of the Gospels. Jesus chooses to show his power by healing the sick, by welcoming little children, the outcasts of society, to come to him and to be embraced in his arms. Jesus shows his power by calming the storm. The disciples are in the boat and this storm raises up and they're shaking Jesus to wake up. They're like, don't you care that we're all going to die? And Jesus gets up from his nap. I love that he was sleeping. And he, and he tells the storm, be calm. Since when does the wind of the ocean listen to a man? It does when it's its creator. Calmness. 
At that point, the disciples are like, okay, now we're freaked out in the boat. Maybe we should get in the water because that seems safer. What he was telling them is that in the midst of all this, you don't get it. Your all-powerful creator, the one in charge of everything, is with you, is for you, and loves you. That kind of power brings peace to our soul. If, if that kind of power didn't have the goodness and the love being for us, it would be terrifying. Also, Jesus knew there was a greater storm brewing for him. Our mighty God knows the angst of what it is to feel the weight like he felt in the garden of Gethsemane, praying to God, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. He knows that. So when life feels heavy, our Savior knows what that feels like. Our mighty God knows what that feels like. You see, the, the confusing thing for, those, for the Israelites that were waiting for the Messiah was that they wanted someone to come in and overthrow Rome. And Jesus could have done that. He, he could have just spoke it, done, accomplished. The problem is, where is Rome today? It exists. But are they the mighty government that they once were? No. We would have had the same problem. Our culture constantly lies to us with ideologies that tell us that our greatest problem in this world is stuff like there's two groups, the oppressed and the oppressor. It's a bad ideology because then it makes certain people the enemies and certain people the not. And, and, and what scripture tells us is that we need a champion, powerful rescuer to come and rescue us from ourselves, from our heart's condition from the fact that we've rebelled and sinned against a holy God, from the fact that we haven't lived up to his standard. And so how does Christ ultimately display his power? He goes to a cross. <laughs> Justin Martyr, early church father, read Isaiah 9, 6, as the weight of the government upon his shoulders and saw the tide of the cross. I don't know if it's there. I think it's a beautiful tie, but we do know and understand this, that Christ displayed his power in this, that the one who was contained in a human body, you got to hear me, at times, it's like his shrouded glory was unshrouded. On the transfiguration, whoa, not even his body could contain it. Also, when they came to arrest Jesus, you have 300 of the most elite soldiers of that day and time that come and say, where's the Messiah? And he says, I'm here. And they all fall down. Jesus let it be known. I have all power and all authority. No one's taking my life. I'm giving it for you. This is a choice I've made, a choice to welcome rebels into my kingdom and into my family. There's the wonderful song, there's power in the blood, there's power in the blood, there's precious power in the blood. The way that Christ displays his power is through the blood shed on the cross. That is why the apostle Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, the good news, for it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. Our God, mighty God, El Gabor, comes, redefines our understanding of power, shows what it is through power, infinite power. I'm thinking if I had access to half the power that Jesus did, that would be scary. I would be terrified of that. You should be terrified of that. I would be like blind, you're mean, boom, that. You know, I'm, I, would, I would do awful things. We see what Christ does. He says, I want to give my life for rebels who have sinned against my father so that you can have what I have through my legal authority when you place your trust and faith in me. I make you righteous. He pardons us guiltless, legally. And then he also gives us something, a royal priesthood. He makes us co-heirs with him, an identity that is unshakable for eternity. That's 
how God shows that he is El Gabor. That's the champion. That's the rescuer. If he wouldn't have done that, we would be hopeless today. We would still think that all these other things are the things that need to be overthrown, not realizing that we need a new heart and to be rescued from our condition. And Christ and Christ alone does that. Someone can say amen. Yeah, like seven of you, and I'm impressed by that. That's a step up. Several pastors describe power as this, strength that is bridled. Strength that is bridled. I believe that's what Christ shows. If you've ever seen The Green Mile, love that movie. Huge black dude, John Coffey, just jacked out of his mind. I don't know how else to describe him. Wrongly charged for the crimes of someone else. He had the power to overthrow every guard in that thing. He probably could have just opened the jail cell. Wrongly accused. Could have overthrown everyone. Stayed in. Those movies are just a picture of the ultimate one who has ultimate authority, ultimate power, and stayed. You've got to hear this. The Jesus Storybook Bible says this well. Nails didn't hold Christ to the cross. He could have told those to come out. His love for those he was rescuing held him there. That's amazing. How does this speak to our hearts? Well, as I said, Christ knows what it is to feel vulnerable. Christ knows what it is to feel weight. But how it speaks to our hearts is even to the story of the mother that I read at the beginning, that we feel so much weight and anxiety and overwhelmed in life, is when you know that the almighty and all-powerful God is for you and is kind and loving and gracious and that he's with you, it's no longer you needing to get your life in order and figure out and manage everything else. It's God with you in the midst of whatever you're going through saying, I'm here and you can't shake me. It also says this, as Jesus says, almighty God, he says this in Matthew eleven twenty-eight 28 through 30, come to me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. I love what Dane Ortland says. Let me read it. Consider what Jesus is saying. A yoke is the heavy crossbar laid on oxen to force them to drag farming equipment to the field. Jesus is using a kind of irony, saying that the yoke laid on his disciples is a non-yoke, for it is a yoke of kindness. Who could resist this? It's like telling a drowning man that he must put on the burden of a life preserver, only to hear him shout back, sputtering, no way, not me. This is hard enough drowning here in these stormy waters. The last thing I need is to add, uh, to add the burden of a life preserver around my body. goes on to explain that the more we understand that Jesus' yoke is actually his finished work, and the more that we take his work and his life upon us, that it actually makes the Christian life buoyant, not heavy. Maybe some of you guys need to hear that this morning. But also you need to hear this. Ephesians 3 says this, 20 and 21. This should change our prayer life. Think about this. If the almighty God, Christ himself, is for you, first he intercedes on your behalf. That's what he's doing. God himself in, in, in the form of Christ, is literally ascended at the right hand of Father, what does he do? He's praying for us constantly. What it means to pray in Jesus' name is that we pray in his merit, not our own, but we also pray in his authority. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Let, let me read that again. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 
to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. That means that we can ask him anything and he's able to do far more abundantly than anything we ask or think. It should radically change our prayer lives. Last, let me say this. How this gives us peace to know that there's safety and rest and peace in the arms of a mighty God is he allows us to experience those arms and that peace in the family called the bride of Christ, called the church. That's why Ephesians tells us that when each member, each part is doing its work, the body is built up. That's why when Paul alludes to the body, he's talking about different members. You see, for some people in the room, it is a lonely season. And for some people in the room, the only hope that, 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 that you have in terms of relationships is your church family. But one of the ways that we get to experience the loving embrace of a good, powerful, loving God is through the family. And so church family, let me challenge you this time in this season to lean into people, to think about that, that you play a vital role in allowing others in your church family and even outside in this world to feel what it is to be connected to a loving God. I think the more the church does that, displays that, the beauty and glory of Christ is shown throughout a community that needs a mighty God. Here's what I want to do, what I want you to do. Take this next 30 seconds to a minute to pray on your own by yourself. If the mighty God has rescued us and saved us and he is for us and we can ask anything that we want, take 30 seconds right now and ask God. Ask God to save those of your family members that, that, that you worry about. Ask God to help you in the condition and circumstance that you find you're in. Ask God to give you the peace that does surpass all understanding in light of the circumstances you're in. You have direct access to God through Jesus Christ. Rush to him right now, boldly in Christ. Take 30 seconds to pray, and then I'll close this out in prayer. Father, thank you that you sent the Messiah that we needed. Christ, the Almighty, the Mighty God, and that Christ, you provided the rescuing that we need. Thank you. We celebrate you as we sing these songs. Let us sing as a response to who you are and what you've done. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.